Well, hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And thanks for joining us again this week. As we often say in our little duo, Philip is the talker and I'm more of the writer. And that's kind of how today's episode's going to go. I've written something that I'll chat through. And then, Philip, I'm going to get you just to react. Okay. That'll be good fun. With enormous positivity and glowing adoration. If you've written it, it'll be absolutely brilliant. And I will look forward to showing all its weaknesses. And <laughs> As always. Well, our topic is the subtly strange and elusive concept of the public square. It's a strange thing, this public square. It's something that apparently everyone wants to be in. We get outraged when certain people are denied access to the public square by being cancelled or deplatformed or algorithmically shadow banned, I think it's, it's called. We were hopeful that the internet would revolutionise the public square and give everyone access to it. But we find ourselves disappointed by what online public conversation has actually turned out to be. And we often lament the fact that we Christians aren't out there more in the public square, speaking and persuading and putting our view. We're worried that perhaps we're being excluded from the public square, or even that we're excluding ourselves by not being more vocal and winsome and persuasive and culturally attuned in the public square. I'm just not entirely convinced that the public square exists or has ever really existed, at least not in the form that many people talk about today. Now, of course, it's true that towns and cities in different places have often had public plazas or open squares where the citizenry could mix and mingle and converse and say their piece. And it's also certainly true that in the West, at least, we're used to various ideas being spread publicly or discussed publicly through newspapers and the electronic media. But did any of this ever amount to the kind of public square that people seem to lament and dream of, a kind of free and open space where any and every citizen, including we Christians, of course, could set up their stall and have their say, where we could all engage in unfettered, open discussion about important public questions without interference or control? Did that kind of square ever exist? Well, hardly. Imagine standing up in almost any public square in any country at any point in the past 2,000 years and saying something really heretical, say, expressing exactly what you thought of the government of the day and its hypocrisy and incompetence, or of the religious authorities and their doctrine, or of the mendacity and corruption of the leading businessmen, and see how long your access to the public square lasted. The ability to communicate openly to the public has always been controlled, either by governments or by those who have amassed the resources to dominate that space. Even in the era of mass 20th century culture, where large swathes of the many-headed would watch the same TV shows or read one of three or four major newspapers, there wasn't really a public square that the citizenry had access to, that is, a single space where all ideas could be openly heard and debated, the public square, such as it was, was manufactured and directed and controlled by a very small group of powerful media operators, by owners and editors and producers and journalists, by people whose interests were closely aligned with the corporate advertisers who paid them, with the ideologies that animated them, with the governments who licensed them. 
Perhaps the reason that Western Christians today lament their lack of access to or influence within the public square is that once within our race memory, we were among the powerful who had a real influence in those spaces. Our ideas were more mainstream and acceptable among those who controlled the machinery of public discussion. The churches were seen to be significant players in the society whose approval or disapproval had to be reckoned with within the public square. But not anymore. Nevertheless, the point is that the public square has never really been and never will be a truly open and free public forum in which everyone deserves to be heard and will be heard. Insofar as there is such a thing as the public square, access to it will always be limited. Only certain ideas will be allowed to flourish, and all this will be controlled by the powerful. Then again, to be fair, I suppose there have been some historical public spaces in which a greater degree of free expression was allowed, in which almost anyone could stand up on his soapbox and put his view. It was called Speaker's Corner. The original famous one was in London's Hyde Park. It was where all the radicals and contrarians and crazies who could never get a run in the mainstream public conversation or public square went to spout their opinions to the amusement, fascination and derision of the crowds who milled about. Which kind of reminds me of what the internet really is, I guess. It's a strange amalgam of massive corporately owned public square conversations that are as open and free as those kind of platforms have always been, which is to say, not much at all. And then there's Speaker's Corner, in which the constant chatter of a million opinions, most of them nuts, constantly seeks the attention of a distracted crowd. It's not unlike Athens in the time of Paul, when you think about it. There was a marketplace where you could stand on your soapbox and have your say, as Paul did, preaching Jesus and the resurrection in Acts 17. And there was the Areopagus, the powerful invitation-only assembly of the philosophers who called Paul before them to explain himself and his strange new teaching. The fascinating thing to me is that Paul's message was the same in both spaces. When he gets to the Areopagus... He preaches Jesus and the resurrection. He doesn't craft a winsome message designed to ensure his ongoing access to that platform. He critiques the stupidity of their ignorance and idolatry and calls on them to repent before God in light of the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord and judge of the world. It's the same message he proclaims in public and in private, in the marketplace, in the synagogues, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, in all his letters to the churches. He has the same message everywhere and to everyone. As he says in Acts 20 when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Areopagus, Paul's proclamation of the resurrected Jesus as judge of the world didn't go down all that well, it has to be said. He was laughed off, although some wanted to hear more. And this seems to be the pattern throughout Acts, in fact. The apostles look for opportunities to speak wherever they can. They proclaim Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord. And before long, they're kicked out or persecuted or otherwise deplatformed. But in the process, some respond 
and are saved. And this, it seems to me, is gospel ministry. And it presents a dilemma for Christians today who want to maintain a voice in the so-called public square. The only way to keep our place and have our voice in these sorts of large-scale media spaces is to speak about what those who control those spaces want you to speak about. You need to follow the agenda they set and address the questions they pose and to stick to the acceptable forms of speech and discourse to remain within the rapidly shifting Overton window, as it's often called. You can take on the questions they pose and chip in your Christian angle. You can express your view within certain limits. You can attempt at least to appear like a normal and reasonable person. But the one statement you can't make is the open statement of the truth. You can't, like Paul in the Areopagus, critique the folly and blindness of the whole nonsensical position. You can't declare that the only true answer is Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, and you certainly can't call on them to repent and put their faith in him. That is, you can't actually speak the truth. You will be deplatformed if you try. And so we're forced to craft a form of public square Christianity that never really truthfully, openly and clearly proclaims Christianity, while presumably reserving the unreserved proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord for some other, safer, more private space. Now, I have to say I perfectly understand this impulse. I have as much aversion to being laughed at, excluded, deplatformed and otherwise persecuted as the next coward. I'd much prefer to be deemed worthy of inclusion in the conversation by those who make such judgments. It's just that doing so forces me to accept the power and rules of those who control the public square. The liberating news is that the Christian needs no one's permission to speak. As Martin Luther was fond of saying, a Christian is the free Lord of all, where nobody's slave except the Lord Jesus Christ's. And because we serve in his kingdom, there is no earthly power that we bow to. But for precisely the same reason, we are the slaves of all giving up our lives for the sake of others, preaching the gospel even though it costs us everything. There's no one who can stop us speaking, nor do we have any excuse not to speak. Warn us to keep quiet, and we will go on our way rejoicing and pray for boldness to keep preaching. Toss us out of the synagogues, and we'll go down the street to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Throw us in jail, and we will evangelise the guards. The God who is Lord of all the world's squares and spaces will keep opening doors for his word, as he did in the first century and has been doing ever since. Our job, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, is simply to keep engaging in the open and straightforward proclamation of the truth, declaring to all that in the face of Jesus Christ we see the glory and rule and salvation of God. This proclamation will be the sweet smell of salvation to some, it will stink of death to others, because it will expose their folly, hypocrisy and sin, and call on them to do what they desperately don't want to do, to put their faith in God and submit to him and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If as Christians we get an opportunity to speak in a public forum of any kind, and do so clearly and faithfully, we'll usually be kicked out of that space before too long. The owners and controllers of the space will make sure of it. But like the apostles, we should go on our way rejoicing and start immediately readying ourselves in prayer for the next opportunity to speak the truth.
Well, Philip, there's the first draft of a piece I'm thinking of calling something like The Myth of the Public Square. What are your reactions and thoughts and questions? Well, I like it in so many ways, especially like your uh, view of Paul in Athens and speaking uh, in that context. But I've, I've thought of just a few different things. Firstly, I wonder whether the phrase public square actually comes from America and comes from the fact that America, unlike Australia, is settled the across its vast expanse with small towns where you could have literally a public square where the town could get together. We do not have the same number of small towns across our vast deserts. Um, do you think the same thing was true in the UK, in Britain? Is there a tradition there of a village having its own square? I'm, I'm not aware of that. I don't think so. Uh, yes, I don't know. don't know the history of it. I've been interested in what you've been saying because it's got me thinking about what the history of the phrase public square is uh, to start with. Secondly is you talk of the kind of influence of our mass media as the kind of public square and that has now been completely taken over and controlled. Uh, Large-scale media spaces, I think you call them, that's really been taken over by secularism in our society um, (laughs) with a very strange rationale that is we are now a multicultural society. In fact, they, they talk as if we had a public discussion on multiculturalism and decided to do it. Sometimes it's the journalists who think they are the public square. Sometimes it's the politicians in Parliament who think they are the public square. But, of course, the public don't necessarily listen to either journalists or the parliamentarians and have no input into either either. And so it really is the secularist party has taken over because of multiculturalism, so that Christians aren't given a special place. Now, your point's right. Maybe our problem is we feel back in the day we had a special place. Had more of a place than we now do, perhaps. And more of a place than we possibly should have. But the exclusion is very total, um, that you are not allowed to use God as an argument in any shape, form or fashion. Uh, Not allowed to point to your religious culture in any shape, form or fashion, unless you're a tiny minority culture of people with a a racially different background or something like that. And so it's the secularist control of whatever the public square may consist of. But then part of that public square, which you don't mention, which we talked about last time, is cause education. And the control of the curriculum for public education, where in article after article I read, the idea is to have a socially cohesive policy or curriculum and that parents shouldn't have the rights of control because that creates inequalities within our society. It promotes difference, in fact, doesn't it? It promotes difference and different views. And in a multicultural society, the last thing we want is difference. (laughs) Which is the strangest (laughs) thing. We're all individuals. Let's all say that together. We're all individuals. (laughs) That's right. And no one is allowed their own point of view. Yeah. It's interesting. That's part of why the public square doesn't work anymore because there are people that actually don't want it. Uh, and they're working against it. Um, and it's not just they're working against uh, Christians, they're working against all religions, any religions. In fact, they're working against anybody who holds a different viewpoint. The strange thing is that 
many of the individual public square kind of vehicles or organs or soapboxes, Twitter, Facebook, particular newspapers, TV, there's a, there's a multiplicity of large ones. And you say, as you say, Parliament is another one. Many of them behave and talk as if they are the public conversation and they yes. are terribly important and we mm. are the shapers of everything. The number of people who actually use Twitter is very small. The number of people who are politically engaged on Twitter and engaged in discussions about political and social issues on Twitter is even more vastly small. Mm. It's an incredibly small percentage of people who are engaged in this vigorous conversation about certain topics. Or, or even listen to Parliament. I mean, I, can, I, sorry, can you listen to Parliament? Well, <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, that's... You know, they think we're listening, but it's only the journalists and the political activists who pay the slightest attention to what's being said in Parliament. Part of our problem then is that we can accept the narrative that's put forward by particular spaces and journalists that they are truly the centre of conversation, whereas in fact they're often a, a very small part of this public conversation. And their interest always, because it sells newspapers, is controversy. So parliamentarians do lots of good things, making good decisions that are really helpful for people, over which there's no controversy and over which we, the public, don't hear a word because the media don't tell us because they're not interested in something where everybody agrees or where decisions are made that would be helpful to people. And so, yes, it's a very selective public square that the parliamentary and media people ever put forward for us. It's, it's very limited. Good, thanks. Any other thoughts or yeah, questions? Well, you did mention that we did have some others, and um, you spoke of Hyde Park, um, and you spoke of it in terms of history, which I found a, a tad insulting, because for two reasons. One, Sydney had its own. It was called The Domain, and it was Sunday afternoons, and... You may call it history, I call it current affairs, because I used to go down to the domain and listen to the public square of the domain. And there were thousands down there um, on a Sunday afternoon listening to the very people you describe, the cranks and the rest, but anybody could get up and have a say. And I don't think there was censorship. I never heard... I heard some really outlandish things down at the domain... I read a little bit about Speaker's and, Corner leading up to this, and it was the original one. I was, I was saying that it was where it started. The, the original one was Hyde Park, but a lot of countries and cities had their own. And even though technically those, spe those speeches were still subject to the same laws, so the laws, for example, of blasphemy or of sedition and other kinds of laws that were around potentially, and even though the law still applied to that speech as public speech, in practice, as you say, there was an extremely broad latitude given for people to express oh, pretty yeah. much whatever you wanted. Oh, it was sedition. and I heard it all, yes. The police vaguely were around, but it was mainly to stop fights. They, they weren't around listening in. And people were saying really extraordinary things there. Um, in the same way, in a sense, that people say it on, on Twitters and the like. They can say things. But more of that in a moment. Also... There was, when, when the, the television came in, when radio came in, governments did try to protect minority views by having certain amounts of time allowed only for religious broadcasting. But you're right, the commercial interests in broadcasting made sure that that kind of religious element wound up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And All my best TV pieces have been at 3 a.m. Yeah. And... 
but likewise, the radio stations were given out, but there were radio stations allocated to religious groups. Um, uh, one radio station in Sydney had its, its nomenclature as St Mary's, another one had us for churches. Uh, but again, commercial interests have taken over both those radio stations. Um, there is an FM radio station with religious broadcasting. But broadcasting, part of the problem of that kind of public square is that Christians didn't really find a way of expressing Christianity clearly in that medium. And the medium is the message. And so I think that's part of the problem that we have not been in it. However, with mass production today and the internet, I think one of the elements you've left out is anonymity. That a public square, people knew in the country town who was speaking. That was a neighbour lived around the corner up their street or something like that. Whereas on the internet, it who knows who's speaking? It can be anonymous, very true. Ah, well, they use pseudonym. It's pseudonymous, isn't it? Mm. And the one person can be making 10 comments under 10 different pseudonyms. And so it looks like there's 10 people who've got a view and it, it's not. And no one's held much to account for their views. But the pseudonymity is there in the mainstream media as well. So I read this morning of a leading controller of mainstream media who has now been revealed to be a serialised uh, adulterer. Well, a man who's a serialised adulterer is a man who will influence mainstream media about sexual morality and family life in a particular way. But it's not till he's retired that we find out what his private agenda was. It's a part of the problem is the mass society that we're in, the sheer size of society, that we, we do not know the people who are talking anymore. And that seems to me a significant problem. The other element I think you haven't got in there is the pressure on the one space where we are free to speak, that is the church. The, the, the church pulpit is really important and the way we run church is still important because it is one of the few places in society where an alternative viewpoint can be put. And it can be put publicly in the sense that it's a public meeting to yes. which anyone can attend, yes. anyone can come in, you can invite anybody, and it's, it's a place where you can publicly declare the gospel, even though in yeah. a sense it's a gathering of Christians, it's a voluntary association, That's right. but it's public in that sense. But there is enormous pressure being put upon the pulpit to, to follow the same kind of impulse you have when you go into the public square to, to make Christianity fit in with the culture of the day rather than challenging the culture of the day by Christianity. And so even in church now, there is this terrific pressure upon the preachers to speak with language that is socially acceptable and that answers the questions that the world is asking rather than asking the world the questions that God is posing. And so preaching is being affected in the last controlled public square Christians have. Well, thanks, Philip, as always. And I don't know how many of those things I'll pick up and include. It's already quite a long article. Maybe I'll just throw them in as PSs. Um, another PS that I was going to throw in, this happened while I was preparing the article. It wasn't the reason I wrote the article, but I was in the middle of drafting it and I saw news that the Gospel Coalition had just launched 
a new centre, a centre for cultural apologetics. It's called the Keller Centre for Cultural Apologetics. Is this uh, the Gospel Coalition Australia or the Gospel Coalition in The original America? one, the one in the US, has mm. launched this. And as we were just talking about, the whole concept of whether we shift the gospel or try to express the gospel in a culturally sensitive way. It's interesting that this kind of popped up in my news feed. And at one level, I kind of had mixed feelings about it when I saw it arrive. At, at one level, the phrase cultural apologetics fills me kind of with foreboding, um, as does the stated aim of the centre. And I quote, I'll give you the quote here, it's to help Christians show unbelievers the truth, goodness and beauty of the gospel as the only hope that fulfills our deepest longings. And so it kind of worried me, is this going to be one of those apologetics institutes that seeks to re-express the gospel in a form that's more in tune with the dominant narratives of our culture and so on? And I've, I've written about this before in a, a piece called The Seven Types of Apologetics. I honestly hope that's not what they're going to try and do, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Well, frankly, it's already gone off the rails in its very opening statement. You see, the truth, the goodness, um, what did you say, and the beauty of the gospel as the only hope that fulfills our deepest longings. That's ridiculous. Our deepest longings is sin. That's our deepest longings. How, how are you going to possibly show me that the gospel gives me the, the truth, the goodness of my sinfulness? I mean, that's just crass Arminianism, which, coming from the Keller Centre of Presbyterianism, I would have thought was ridiculous. I mean, it's, it thinks that humans are seeking after God and then their cultures are expressions of God rather than their expressions of God's judgment and their attempts of people to run away from God and express their sinfulness. I, that's... That I think that's right. Back I, to front. I think that's right. As I've as I've chatted in this space with different people, the way it's sometimes expressed is that we have God given desires. We have these longings and desires inside of us for meaning, for truth, for beauty, and so on. Um, I have eternity in my heart. This kind of thing, and but that it's we put just, this in such a way that I cannot know the answer from that's the what beginning. Ecclesiastes to the end. three says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." The eternity in our heart is not a glimmer of light and hope that we're going to grab onto and, and um, build a narrative around. It's part of our judgment, the fact that we yes. kind of get a sense that there is more, that that there is... In fact, the word eternity in Ecclesiastes 3 just means a very long span of time. It, it, it means I have a sense of the ancient past and I have a sense of the distant future. I have a sense that I'm located in this great long span of time, but I can't make sense of it. Well, it, it gives me the sense that there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for this, a time, because there's some sense outside of the particular events that makes sense of it, but not that I know what it means. And, and creation's like it. You see, creation declares the glory of God, but out of our sinfulness, we suppress that knowledge. <laughs> it's not a path for us towards knowing God. No. It's a it, judgment on us that it's there, but we ignore it. Yes, yes, that's right. And so... So this is where apologetics and evangelism are two different things. And this kind of setting up of apologetics undermines evangelism. I'm worried that it does. Yes, and what's worrying is these are the people who actually don't mean to say that. They're actually our friends who want to evangelise. Exactly. They're the Gospel Coalition and they gather together the, the evangelical gospel people. So it's a little alarming and concerning, but... Let's earnestly hope and pray that it doesn't go in that direction, mm. although it's, it seems set up in, in an unfortunate fashion.
I said I had mixed feelings about this centre. The other emotion or the other feeling I had was actually amusement because, strangely, what happened within about five seconds of this new centre being announced um, with its 24 eminent fellows who were going to lead the operation, someone was complaining that the list of fellows was too white and too male. (laughs) Uh, Of the 24, apparently, only five were women and only... Seven were people of colour. So the culture, <laughs> Centre for Cultural Apologetics has its first apologetic challenge. How will it commend the gospel in a culturally connected way when it's already on the back foot with identity yeah. politics? It just shows the absurdity of the situation, doesn't it? What, what a terrible thing that we think truth comes from particular race or particular gender or sex. I mean... Truth is truth, irrespective of the mouth that speaks it. Paul says, even if an angel from God comes preaching a gospel contrary to the gospel, let him be damned. I mean, yes, it's it, even it's if a an sellout. angel, even if a female angel of who was a was an angel of color comes, yeah. preaching, <laughs> it may not be the truth. It's, it's, it's got no more likelihood of being the truth one way or another. Yeah, that is the the sellout, isn't it? In fact, you may say. Uh, look, it's it's bad, only five uh, women. But you'd have to think in our present day, I wonder if they've picked the 24 best or they've actually said, oh, we must have five women at least. And so the one selection, does suspect that's possible. Yes, right. yes, the cynicism of one. But it's would, do we are we looking for the 25 best of all or are we making sure we've got a even coverage of different viewpoints. Which is already a kind of capitulation to the culture in a way. They've already capitulated, yes. Mm. It's very sad. Well, on a slightly different note, maybe a lighter note to finish with, Philip, uh, among the various... (laughs) That was pretty funny, really. It was pretty funny, but (laughs) among the many emails we've received, I got a really funny one from from our friend John uh, Kanana in the UK, who um, you've heard of this new artificial intelligence bot called chat gpt i have heard of it yes um so john (laughs) decides what if i asked chat gpt to produce a song that's based on two ways to live and that alludes to all the bible verses contained in two ways to live and he sent us the song with music no just lyrics um thankfully we can be thankful for for those mercies at least um let me give you some of the verses here's verse one worthy is the lamb who was slain his blood has washed away our stain. With power, honour and might, we sing of his love day and night. And here comes the chorus. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By his grace we are saved and in his love our hearts are engraved. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's marvellous, isn't it, that so far artificial intelligence has not yet been able to capture the intuitive human brain, that poetry has something that is beyond uh, artificial intelligence. Oh, I don't know. I mean, this is pretty terrible poetry. Yes. <laughs> if John's suggesting that possibly this is going to put Christian poets out of business... They've well, got it, a long way to go. Well, no, I was thinking this is not that much worse than most of the poetry of most of the songs we sing on Sunday mornings. <laughs> it's as forced and laboured and trite as much of our... Christian lyrics. Yes, maybe. So, so maybe with a little bit more development, chap GPT is, is coming for the contemporary Christian music industry. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> or you should change church. 
Well, perhaps on that note, we'll round off this conversation. Um, thanks, Philip, once again for your uh, contribution. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Two Ways News. As always, we're really keen to hear from you. So send us an email. You can just email me at tonyjpain at me.com. Uh, and I will get back to you. It might take me a week or two, but I will send you a reply uh, and we'll feature your question or comments um, on the next episode if they fit in well. And also, if you'd like to support us in what we're doing here at Two Ways News, we have a supporters club, uh, a group of people who chip in some money to help us produce this uh, podcast and newsletter each week. It's very simple to do that. You just go across to twoways.news and you hit subscribe and you'll see a range of options there. You can sign up for free and just get the email every week for free, which you're very welcome to do, which we love you doing. Or you can choose one of the other options there to not only get the free emails, but also to chip in a few dollars to help us keep doing it. And we also send out some bonus material for our supporters uh, every now and then. And there's a supporters Q&A coming up quite soon. So if you want to be part of that, Think about becoming a supporter. Well, I think that's all for this week. Let's round off this episode, as we always do, by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of your gospel. And we thank you that you put us in the midst of human cultures, in public spaces where we interact with other people. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful and courageous in the way we proclaim your gospel in all of those spaces. We pray you'd open doors for us, in no matter what culture we're in and what circumstance we're in, to preach your word and that we would do so faithfully and clearly and straightforwardly. Uh, Father, we pray that as we navigate sometimes the complicated issues of how we respond in our society, especially society in Western cultures that is increasingly hostile to the gospel and increasingly excluding the gospel and Christian perspectives from public discussion, please give us wisdom and courage as we respond to that. Help us not to capitulate to our culture. Help us to love the people, Father, that we interact with day by day and to love them enough to speak the truth in love to them, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.